Good morning. Let us pray as we dive into the word today. As we consider the readings that we've just heard, and especially the call to us, that we who believe in you will be immersed fully in your Holy Spirit. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be our teacher this morning, that my words would be your words, that these scriptures would come alive in our hearts, and that we might be restored and turn to you fully. We pray, Lord, that you would move in us a revival of our hearts, that we would seek you above all else. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's um, really good to be back with you all. Uh, last night was great joy. We had a, a white elephant um, Christmas party with the staff, and I've decided I'm going to have to, as a bishop, enact some discipline on some people. Um, I will not mention any names to protect the guilty. Uh, it was great to just celebrate and also then to be with you, you this morning as we look at this uh, passage from Psalm 85, this great psalm, we're in this season of Advent. If you missed last Sunday, we started the season of Advent. Advent is like a gift to us that most of us really never unwrap. It's a, it's a call to us to contemplate and to consider that Jesus came once and will come again. And we are to be prepared, and we are to place our hope in waiting on his return, however long that takes. Every year, um, I love going through the season of Advent. It's probably my favorite season. Every year, I set out with great expectations and hopes for it, only to be dashed by my own frailty and all the ways that I fall short of what God calls us to be. And yet, it's usually in the season of Advent that I experience his grace. I pray that we do that today as we look at Psalm 85. Every year, I get to go to Rwanda. We, at Church of the Redeemer in Greensboro, we started a sister church um, relationship over there about 15 years. And so I go once a year, sometimes it's twice. It'll actually be in the calendar year twice this year because we went in April and this time, I'm going not for our sister church relationship, but the bishop of the Diocese of Gahini invited me to come and be the stand-in, uh, walk his daughter down the aisle. They, we, in our you know, culture, it's the dad that does that. In theirs, it's an uncle or a brother or someone of the family. So we have become dear friends. We've known each other a long time, so it's a great privilege to get to do that. And I told Manasseh, I love you because I'm going to travel 48 hours <laughs> on an airplane in an airport to be here um, for your daughter to celebrate. Why I like going to Gahini besides the relationships, if you've never heard of this place, maybe you'll um, read about it or you can Google it later. In the 1930s, two men, a British doctor and a Ugandan layperson, locked themselves in a hut, this is 1933, and for seven days they fasted and they prayed, and God met them powerfully. And what emerged out of that experience was what we commonly call today the East African Revival, 
hundreds of millions of people around the whole globe have become Christians because two people, two very simple, not so special people, locked themselves in a hut and asked the Lord to forgive them and to restore them and to use them. And today, missiologists and church scholars would say the East African revival, what happened there in little Gahini, Africa, where I go every year, what happened there has been the greatest revival of God's spirit in church history since Pentecost. Some would say Pentecost was the biggest. This is the second. It's amazing what happens when we dedicate our hearts to the Lord. This is what Psalm 85 is reminding us of. And this psalm is written right after the return of the exile. The people of Israel over two successive campaigns were devastated for their unfaithfulness and God's judgment. In 722 BC, the Assyrians came down and took off the north part of Israel. And in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and they captured most of the influential and notable people, took them back to Babylon and enslaved them for 70 years. And so this psalm was written as Israel reemerged from years of captivity and exile. And I think this psalm expresses the heart of those who are clinging to God's promises and have seen his hand at work in them. The Psalms, if you are not a fan or a practitioner of the Psalms, I would encourage you that without the Psalms, the Bible can be very stiff and stilted. Even in the daily readings within the Anglican tradition, we have people read scripture every day and every evening. We have them read the Psalms, all of them, all 150, one time in one month. So that means... If you follow that plan, you're reading the Psalms 12 times in one year. Why is that? I want you to think about that for a second. Why would that kind of emphasis be placed on the Psalms when we know, well, the Gospels are the direct words of Jesus and the epistles are the teaching and the, New, and the Old Testament is the narrative. Why the Psalms getting that much airplay on your iPod Playlist. Nobody uses iPods anymore. That was a slip. iPhone playlist, or if you're a nonconformist, you use Androids or Google phones, right? Why, why would that be the emphasis? And that's because the Psalms are crucial for our life in Christ. They express every emotion of the human condition. We know that this Psalm written by the sons of Korah, these were um, a man named Korah led a rebellion, and these children, his children, were spared. Um, this is number 16. And so they were these massive worship leaders. They were the Jared Grices of this time in the history of Israel. And many of their psalms were written as praises to God for his mercy of what he's done with them. So I want to read one quote from an author who says this. The book of Psalms express worship throughout its many pages. The Psalms encourage its readers to praise God for who he is and what he has done. The Psalms illuminate the greatness of, God, of our God. They affirm his faithfulness to us in times of trouble. 
and they remind us of the absolute centrality of his word as the Psalms present a clear picture of God lovingly guiding his people. The responses of praise and worship are never far from the psalmist's pens. The portrayal of worship in the Psalms offers us glimpse after glimpse of hearts devoted to God, individuals repentant before him, and lives changed through encounters with him. It's in the Psalms that we see the tremendous honesty of people responding to God. This is why one of my friends says, our prayers often today are very boring. The Psalms pray very boldly and honestly. Listen to David in Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you ever prayed that kind of prayer? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night I find no rest. That's the power and the gift of the Psalms for us. I commend you to read them more frequently. When was the last time that you were that honest? You see, honesty, I believe, is an essential part of our relationship with God. If our relationship with God is a survey or an assessment of who he is, we miss out on the fullness of what he offers. He wants to know what we think. He wants to hear our prayers. He delights in us. And the Psalms reveal people responding to him that way. An outline for Psalm 85 can be very simply framed this way. Three things. Always three things. If you're a preacher, it's Trinitarian. Um, If I said there's two things, I'd forget one of them. If I said four, I'd forget two of them. I can remember three always. We know what you've done before, Lord. Number one, we know what you've done. Number two, do it to us. And number three, we have confidence in your promises. We know what you've done. We know your past actions to your people. Secondly, then do it to us today. Do it to us this morning. And lastly, we have confidence in your promises. December, early in our marriage, Um, Angela Kay and I raised financial support to do ministry. We were on a a staff of a nonprofit parachurch ministry. And this was about a year into marriage. And support raising is really often difficult. Um, And so uh, I'm more of the accountant type in our family. So I sat down and I calculated um, how much money we needed to have $1 in our bank account on December 31st. I was setting my goals low enough, right? If you set them low enough, you always achieve them. So $1, I would have liked more. And we calculated it up, and the number was basically $1,000, $1,000. We had no promises of that $1,000 coming in. So we drove home to be with her family for Christmas celebrations. We came back. I'm going through the mail, stacks of Christmas cards. Most of them were for Angela Kay. She has way more, many more friends than I do. So we're reading all these Christmas cards, people's notes and letters. We get this one card, and I open it up, and the card reads this way. It says, hi, my name's so-and-so. I won't mention their name publicly. 
But um, I, my wife and I heard about your ministry and your calling, and we want to send you a gift. And there was a check. How much do you think that check was? to a 23-year-old kid who was learning to trust God. That event has shaped my life significantly. Now, John, I looked it up, $1,000 back then is $2,000 today. So it was a chunk of money for us at the time. And I just distinctly recall this thought. If God can provide like that, when I had no idea how that was going to happen. And I was starting to formulate plan B, C, and D. Like plan B was maybe I could get a retail part-time job over the Christmas hours. Plan D, E, F, or way down the list was we'd have to ask our parents for money. We didn't want to do that. They'd been so generous to us. And we were simply at this stage of saying, Lord, it's up to you. $1,000 check. Today, when I doubt or I wonder about what God's up to, I'm often reminded of that one event in December of 1994, $1,000 from a person we didn't even know. The psalmist in the first three uh, verses of this psalm look back on the actions of God in history past and how he showed favor to them by restoring to them And their restoration was tangible. They were delivered from captivity and returned back to Jerusalem. In other words, they could point to these past actions of God and know that he had acted on their behalf. Sometimes it's really hard to understand why the Bible is written the way it is. Like, why all these stories? It's why I think a lot of us find a little bit easier comfort in reading the New Testament. It's a little bit more precise. Why the history and the story of these names and all the funny lists and all those things? But simply, it is that the Bible makes clear how God is faithful to his people despite their failures and their fragility. The Bible makes clear that humanity and human systems are not the hero of the story in any way, but rather... All of these stories, all of these promises, all of these narratives culminate in the person of Jesus Christ, our great hero, that God has made and fulfilled his promises to us through Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul echoes this in 2 Corinthians Corinthians chapter 1. He says, all of God's promises to us are yes in Jesus Christ. If you want to know Is God interested and involved? Does he care about your life? You look at what Jesus has done. That's the promise. That's his actions in history past that you bank on. What has God truly promised you then? He's promised us many things, but primarily and ultimately, he has promised you and I that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And how do we know if someone will keep their promise? How do you know that? I had to edit my language because my kids are literalists. They're fundamentalists on promises. I would say, yeah, we'll do that. And then they would remind me later. But you said. And so now I've said, well, maybe. 
Or more spiritually, let me pray about that, which really means no, but it's a delay tactic, right? So I've learned the value of keeping promises. My kids remind us of it all the time. One business leader once wrote this, that past behavioral performance is a future predictor. Let me say that again. Past behavioral performance is a future predictor. I can trust the Lord today because of the promise that he has kept in the past. That's what I'm banking on. A key ingredient of our gathering as Christians is recounting the faithfulness of God. In our communion service, we talk about remembering. We recount the story of redemption as we remember that word is anamnesis. The opposite of anamnesis is amnesia, to forget. The call of Christians is to be historians. Now, I told my daughter one time, she really did not like history in school, and I said, Emily, you would rather make history than study it. And she says, yes. I think a lot of us think that way. I'd rather make history than learn about facts and figures of dead people. But in reality, it is the study of God's history, his actions in past that drive our faith today. How do I know that I can trust God? Because of the way that he has acted in the past. This brings me to my second point. The psalmist now moves from praising God for his deeds of delivering, of restoring Israel, to the second thing he says, I pray that you will restore us. The author becomes very personal in this matter. Restore us. The Hebrew word for restore is shuv. Can you say that with me? Shuv. Like, it's actually a compliment in Hebrew to say, shuv off, bro. Um, it's like, turn to the Lord, right? Shuv means turn or to restore. If you like the King James Version, you'll know in this passage, in Psalm 80, in Psalm 126, the word shuv is used. It says, turn to us, O Lord. Um, a few years ago, I used to play golf a lot. A few years ago, I needed to re in rejuvenate my golf game, so I took coaching lessons. And one of the coaching lessons, it was literally like the karate kid. He took me to the banquet hall of a country club, and he had me take plates and turn the plates as if this is the way I start my swing. Just, I know those of you who are golf gurus, you're like, you're hopeless, Alan. So I'm going to take up pickleball, right, Jeremy? Um, turn like that. So he just made me turn and take a plate and put it right beside me, just over and over again, trying to teach me muscle memory of turning my body so it would set my body up for the right swing, right? The, the word here, shuv, to be restored, is engaging us in double meanings, to turn to the Lord and for the Lord to turn to us. And that turning is our restoration. It is when we confirm and baptize people in the church, we ask them this great question, do you turn to the Lord Jesus and accept him as Savior and Lord? 
In the book of Malachi, we hear that God will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their father. It's a very biblical concept, this word shuv. And this, friends, is the seeds of personal revival in our own life. To pray a very daring prayer is what the psalmist writes. Restore me, O God. Turn to me. Let me know your love. As Moses says in Exodus 33, show me your glory. Bless me. Why could I dare ask this kind of request? But because God has turned to his people in the past. This is the confidence that the psalmist is reminding us of. Why could dare ask this, this kind of prayer? We desire you, Jesus, to be the highest object of our affection. Listen to what the psalmist writes. Verse 6, will you not revive us? Restore us, shuv. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him that his glory may dwell in our land. Praying for restoration is a prayer first in our own hearts. God, restore me. So would you do me a favor for just a second and answer this in your own hearts. Where do you need to be restored? Where do you need the Lord to turn to you and turn to him. This is what the psalmist is enjoining us to do because God has faithfully restored his people and turned to them in the past. I can boldly and confidently turn to him and know that he will hear me and he will meet with me. This is why we can pray full of confidence and boldness, boldness and humility. Which brings me now to my third point. Why can we have confidence in God's promises? Listen to what the psalmist continues. I will hear what the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints. To his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. In some of the most beautiful and inspiring language, the psalmist gives us a glimpse of the hope of God turning to us. Psalm 85.10 says that righteousness and peace kiss each other. I want to put a, a famous painting on the screen for us, painted in the 1650s. Love and faithfulness meet each other, the psalmist says. And the psalmist is personifying these two great concepts, God's love and his faithfulness and his righteousness and his peace, kissing one another. Um, other translations say that peace and righteousness will embrace or will unite. You might not be able to see it that well, but you can see this picture of 
this man and this woman kissing and embracing as personification of what the Lord does with those who turn to him. This is what they experience, his embrace and his restoration. We heard earlier from Isaiah, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The idea is that the Lord's attributes of righteousness and peace harmonize together in this beautiful imagery to bring comfort to us, those who turn to the Lord. As you know, a kiss is a common form of greeting in ancient times. I like people when they challenge Anglicans for doing certain things and asking if we're being biblical. Well, then I say, well, do you greet one another with a holy kiss when you gather? And they stop that line of argument, usually quickly. Um, The word painted here, this picture, shows these two separated for a long time. Two have been estranged. Righteousness and peace have been estranged from each other. But now they're friends again. This is the result of personal revival, of reuniting God's righteousness and his peace here in my heart. I would hope today you don't miss this opportunity to turn to the Lord. Lord, what do you want to restore and make right in me? Despite the wrongdoing done by the nation of Israel, God's grace would extend to them. Psalm 85 teaches that God's grace is greater than our sin. God would bring peace to Israel once again through his righteousness and his peace, his faithfulness and his love coming together. The ultimate fulfillment of love and faithfulness meeting together and of righteousness and peace kissing one another is demonstrated in the Lord Jesus' work to reconcile us to God. It is through Jesus that we experience peace with God and the forgiveness of sins. This is Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Because of his love and mercy, we have eternal life through his death and resurrection. Just as God didn't deal with Israel as they deserved in the Old Testament... So he has offered us his grace in spite of what we've done. I want you to hear this clearly. In spite of what you've done, in spite of the things that you may think or feel, the thoughts of your hearts, the attitudes inside that you would dare share with no one, God's grace can restore you. God's grace can kiss you with righteousness and peace and bring us peace with God. I want you to think about the scene in the setting of the Garden of Gethsemane. What does Judas do to identify Jesus? He kisses him. Judas, who's betraying the Lord Jesus Christ, goes to him in front of the disciples, in front of Roman soldiers, and he kisses him. And it's Judas's kiss that inaugurates Jesus's crucifixion his death, his unjust trial, and his resurrection. It is this kiss of betrayal that the Lord takes to turn to us his kiss of love and mercy and grace.
Brothers and sisters, turn to the Lord today. Today is the day. Turn to him. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your promises to us in Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would give us grace to turn to you. That you would pull away the distractions and the worldly affections that draw us away from your love. And that our hearts might be made new by your mercy and your peace, your love and your righteousness to us. And we ask that you would help us to be people who know you, people who long for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.